Hiring for your small business? If you're not looking for professionals on LinkedIn, you're looking in the wrong place. That's like looking for your car keys in a fish tank. LinkedIn helps you hire professionals you can't find anywhere else, even those who aren't actively searching for a new job but might be open to the perfect role. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't even visit other leading job sites. So start looking in the right place. With LinkedIn, you can hire professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com slash people today. In a sudden flash, it all comes clear. It's a eureka moment, an epiphany. Hi, I'm Marcus Smith, host of the Constant Wonder Podcast. The world offers marvel, meaning, and mystery around every single corner. In nature, art, science, culture, history, we talk everything from bees and beetles to obelisks and asteroids. Experience the thrill of transformative encounter. We'll bring more wonder to your day. Listen to Constant Wonder wherever you get your podcasts. Before we start our episode today, this is just a reminder, History Hack does have a Patreon account and all of your donations are gratefully appreciated. There's lots of perks on there, secret groups on Facebook. Do get involved. We would love to see more of you. Enjoy the episode today. Hello and welcome to another instalment of History Hack. I'm just going to hand straight off to the babyface assassin today because we're in his wheelhouse. So I'm just here to learn and he's going to do all the yapping. Isn't that right, Zach? Absolutely. No prizes for guessing where we're at. We're back in the Napoleonic era. We are looking at what I think might be Britain's most unlikely Napoleonic victory. We're looking at Egypt, but not the Egypt stuff that we were talking about with Kate Jamieson a few weeks back. That's the first part of the whole process of what happens in Egypt during this period with Nelson, Battle of the Nile and leaving Napoleon marooned in the country. We're looking at the other end of that whole process. So right at the end, when we're, the British are effectively involved in mopping up the, the, the French army out there. And we are joined by Stuart Reed, who's a pretty prolific author and historian. He's written so many books that if I listed them, it would take the whole podcast. But they include Like Hungry Wolves, which was on the Battle of Culloden, Wellington's Highland Warriors, which is a personal favourite of mine, and Egypt 1801. Hence why we're talking about that with him today. Stuart, great to have you on. Welcome to History Hack. How are you doing? I'm doing pretty well. Yourself? Yeah, I'm, I'm well. Thank you for caring. Normally, guests just turn around and go, yeah, I'm, yeah, I'm fine. Um, <laughs> yeah, let's talk about me now. <laughs> <laughs> exactly. So, as, as I said, this episode ties in really neatly with the one that we did with Kate Jamieson. Just remind our listeners about why the British end up going to Egypt in 1801. Well, the short answer is because the French were there. There were two reasons. One, British were trying to clear the French out of the Mediterranean. But more importantly, they were trying to avoid the threat which Egypt, or rather French Egypt, posed to India. Now, although the great days of the Raj, however you want to express it, still lay in the future, India was very important to Britain, economically. And for all that can be said quite rightly about Wellington and the British Army over the next 10, 15 years, ultimately, Britain's importance in the winning of the Napoleonic Wars was down to money. The subsidies which she provided for everyone in Europe prepared to fight against Napoleon. And those subsidies came from two areas. One was the West Indies. 
and the other was East India, more specifically India. And already by 1800, this was quite obvious, which is why one of the reasons Napoleon had gone there in the first place, rather why he'd be able to convince the French directorate that he could go there. So clearing that threat to India was a very much at the heart of why British troops went to Egypt. Yes, it was a good idea getting rid of the French in Egypt as part of the war, but primarily it was protecting India. The British army before this point has a particularly bad record. And so, for example, we've got defeat in the American War of Independence. We've got a pretty disastrous expedition to the Low Countries under the Duke of York in the mid-1790s. And it's kind of, and those have a kind of legacy, don't they, um, in terms of how the army starts to think about planning for the future. What do you kind of feel that legacy is? Well, the legacy, to some extent, is misunderstood. The American war, tactically, on the battlefield, the British army did pretty well. Its biggest failing was political and logistical, and everything had to be trucked across the Atlantic for a start. On the battlefield, they did well, but the actual fight for America, as in social, political fight, was pretty much a loser from the start. So the army came back with the air of having been defeated. It hadn't really. You've then got 10 years of rebuilding before once again into war first in Flanders and then the West Indies and so on. But there are two problems with both. First of all, there's a massive expansion of the army. And just to give you a simple example, when the war broke out, the establishment size of a British infantry battalion was 350 men. Quite literally at the stroke of a pen, on being mobilised for war, that was increased to 800. You simply, even if you can find those recruits, you simply can't absorb them and turn them into useful soldiers and useful battalions overnight. So it was a rocky start because the commitments were too wide at the start of the war. The long campaign in the West Indies meant that the recruits were no sooner bundled into the regiments and were dead of yellow fever and all sorts and anywhere on the other side of the world. And in the midst of all this, the British army wasn't given an opportunity to fight. At an individual level, units were able to function, and able to function efficiently. The big problem was actually getting them out on a battlefield where you've got more than one battalion, you've got more than one brigade acting as an army. Now, in that sort of term, the British Army had no experience since 1783, except in India, which was far away and nobody took any notice of it. So it was very much a learning curve, and quite a long learning curve, but a useful learning curve. It wasn't really until they got to Egypt that they had the chance to prove that 
they had brought themselves up to speed. I, I like what you say there about um, the West Indies. The West Indies, for me, it always feels as though at the start of the the conflict that begins in the the, the 1790s in the wake of the French Revolution, Britain just kind of goes into default 18th century mode in the sense of they have this plan, take sugar islands, use them as negotiating chips. And then it kind of becomes obvious as the, the French army becomes increasingly successful on the continent that that's not going to be enough. Do you think that's a, a fair interpretation? It's all priorities. Once upon a time, as in earlier in the 18th century, Warfare in the Caribbean was straightforward. You tooled up with a fleet, the island surrendered after dignified resistance, and you took over. The same settlers, the same planters, the same slaves, walked away as normal until the end of the war when there was a reshuffle, it's a case of, right, will you give me that back and I'll take this one back, sort of thing. But in the 1790s, it's totally different. The French Revolution, and particularly in Haiti, or San Domingo as it was then, had taken on a completely different aspect. You were talking about slave revolts, which the ideology was far more important. In San Domingo, right at the outset, the British captured the ports in a traditional manner. They turned up, disembarked, beat the local troops, and sit down to sort of enjoy the fruits of their labours. And then discovered that in the interior, they were being fought. People weren't surrendering. People weren't obligingly carrying on with life as usual. It was a far, far, far more fundamental struggle, which spread over the other islands as well and threatened islands such as Jamaica, which were in no danger from French troops, but felt themselves justifiably under some considerable danger from insurgents. The problem with Flanders was that we, we weren't fighting there as a British army. We were fighting there as part of a coalition, and a very unstable coalition of Austrians, Prussians, Dutch, and various other minor powers. So the overall commander in Flanders was actually an Austrian archduke. And we were merely a contingent in that fight. So we just hurried hither and thither, not operating in the British agenda at all, which again is what later becomes important with Egypt, because it was a wholly British affair, in as much as we had Turkish allies, but it was a British army, it wasn't a coalition army. Um. Let's start talking about the Egypt expedition then, just to kind of take it back to the, the focus and, and to your book, which I really enjoyed reading, I have to say. The leader of the British expedition is Ralph Abercrombie. He's not, I mean, within, okay, within Napoleonic circles, better known, but probably not as well known now as certainly he was at the time. Certainly he was, it ended up being lauded as quite the hero. Give us a sense of what kind of an individual he was and what his philosophy was when it came to commanding. Abercrombie, I think, is a very misunderstood general. At the time, he was a bit sick Garnet Wolsey, 
he was our only general. He performed reasonably well in Flanders, unlike some people. He then performed reasonably well in West Indies. He took a couple of expeditions across there, which achieved their initial objectives of actually capturing ports, that sort of thing. Although the longer term effects of those campaigns were fairly visible. He was then sent to Flanders again, well, not Flanders, but Holland for the expedition there in 1799. He did reasonably well. So he wasn't so much as the best choice as the only choice of command. His philosophy was competence, I think is the best way to put it. He actually had no prior experience before Flanders in 93. But he was an Irish politician, as in he was a member of the Irish establishment. He'd served in Ireland right throughout his career. He'd been Minden in 59, but since then, not a shot fired. What he was able to do was he took up with Dundas and his famous 18 manoeuvres, thought the best thing since sliced bread, and he enforced the use of them. He, he was, it can fairly be said he was a martinet. This is the way to do it, and you will do it, or oh God help you. And he insisted on training, 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 so that when he actually led troops into battle, they were well trained. May not be the best doctrine he was following, but he made sure that they were operating competently. And therefore, the troops themselves had a great deal of confidence in him. But there was no great genius there, but at least he was competent. Interesting. I'm, I'm struck by the slightly predictable comparison, of course, with Wellington, also Anglo-Irish. Wellington, from reading between the lines of what you're saying, I, I suspect that Wellington was a little bit different. Wellington liked competence, but he liked talent with a title, if you know what I mean. He was, as I've said many times, a snob, fundamentally. Uh, he was deeply embedded in that whole kind of ancien regime system. Is Abercrombie of a similar mould or... Because oh, very, very of... similar. What, what's striking about Abercrombie's career, and particularly towards the end of it, is the degree to which he represented the old system. It was all scratch my back, I'll scratch yours. And we'll probably talk about it later, but his second-in-command for the Egypt expedition was his personal choice. Equally lacking in leadership and competence and everything else, but he was a good friend of Abercrombie, so he went out there. This, it very much depended on who you knew rather than a merit-based system. And Abercrombie's son, who was the deputy quartermaster general, had no experience whatsoever. He'd started off at the age of 12 as his father's ADC, had not got a single regimental day soldiering in his life. Classic. Some of his promotions were in uh, Hutchinson's own regiment. 
he became major of Hutchinson's regiment in 94. Again, no previous experience. And then 95, he became then colonel of Hutchinson's brother's regiment. And total corruption. What I find really interesting here, of course, is that there's a long, um, long-standing problem within the army during this period of exactly that kind of thing, that cronyism and signing um, boys effectively up to positions in potentially quite senior positions in command, certainly um, filling the lower ranks with things like enzymes at the age of you know, five or something. And that is precisely what the Duke of York then tries to weed out over the course of the, the next decade, having come back from the low countries and, and starting to ponder what went wrong. Let's, I, I mean, again, I'm trying to resist that um, temptation to sort of get sidetracked. We could go in any which way with this, but the British going ashore at Abukir Bay, I always think this is an incredible operation. It strikes me as the nearest thing the 19th century or the early 19th century gets to a D-Day. Um, so they go ashore under fire. Talk us through the planning for the landings and how the battle unfolds, because it ends up being in comparative terms, quite costly for the British, doesn't it? Well, that's one of the interesting things about it, because although Abercrombie was a figurehead, the real work throughout this campaign was done by the subordinates. Now, Abercrombie commanding the army and Lord Keith commanding the fleet had engaged in a fairly abortive attempt to land at Cadiz a few months earlier. Neither of them had an answer to how it was done. So they delegated it down to the superior, to inferiors, to the staff officers on both sides, the army and the navy. And it was those officers who worked out the best way to do it. The big problem with landing at Abukir, and it was even worse at the other side, so Abukir was definitely the best choice, was the shallowness of the water. We're in the Mediterranean, remember, so there's no tides worth mentioning. But they're seven miles out, as in most of the troops are aboard large ships, which can only get within seven miles of the shore. They also don't have enough boats. They've got landing craft and ships' boats, but nothing enough. So the army has got to land in two lifts or ships, if you like. And the plan which was worked out was to put the smaller ships inshore. They could get them into two or three miles of the beach. They stretch them in a line inshore. And then the first wave, we're going ashore first, actually set off from seven miles back, rode through the first, the second smaller ships to the beach. So once they were landed, the boat only had a short distance to come back to pick up the second wave. And it worked very well. And the French didn't manage to stop the landing at all. They didn't have enough men. They caused some casualties in the run-in. And they immediately counter-attacked, got beaten off. And their positions were stormed quite out of hand. As the casualties, throughout the campaign, when there was an actual stand-up fight, the casualties were fairly heavy because they were fighting. It wasn't one of those 
quick volley and everybody runs away. They did actually get stuck in, they were fighting. They weren't of themselves excessive casualties, but the problem was the British army was too small, and so were the French. So that losing 1,500 men, killed and wounded, may not be a disaster in ordinary terms, but because the army was so small, they simply couldn't afford to keep losing that number of men every time they met the French. And they were shrinking very fast. And they had a total of 15,000 men to begin with. And no reinforcements arrived until months later. So every man shot, whether killed or wounded, was quite literally irreplaceable. So the British move on to take Alexandria. In the process of that, Abercrombie is wounded and then he later dies. How much of a blow was that to the morale and also the command structure of the British force? Is there that sense that Abercrombie commands a successful landing and therefore gains the trust of his troops? Is he seen as too much of a martinet for the, the men to really care? And then, you know, you're talking about how there's a lot of cronyism in this force. Is the the army effectively hamstrung by the fact that they've lost the commander who, from what you've said earlier, is effectively the only person to lead this expedition? No, I mean, there's an obvious immediate shock. But they did have a second in command already in place waiting for that very reason. He, he was designated... John Healy Hutchinson was designated as the second in command to take over in the event of Abercrombie being incapacitated. So it was a very smooth takeover, and so smooth that well, honestly nobody really noticed. What they did notice was a total lack of any idea as to what to do next. Abercrombie was in the same position. He Landed, he'd been instructed to take Alexandria. He marched towards Alexandria. The French counterattacked and killed him. They got beaten off. They, they were undoubtedly defeated. But it was quite impossible to take Alexandria because it's a very strongly fortified position, strongly fortified hills outside town. And all Abercrombie could think about was launching a frontal assault on a quite impregnable position. So once Abercrombie died, his successor, Hutchinson, was equally puzzled as to what to do next. And after giving the matter a lot of thought, he eventually decided to stay where he was and fall back to a certain extent in order to attack the French supply line from the Nile Delta. Once he got there, he successfully pushed his way into the French depot at Ravanaya. And there he intended to stop because nobody had any idea what to do next. Nobody was willing to storm Alexandria simply because too many, it was too strong and there weren't enough troops. And they were diminishing, obviously, with for medical reasons. So pretty much at a loss. But there was another factor here. 
because the original the expedition was originally predicated on protecting India, a secondary force had been sent to India, intended to land in the Red Sea and come up and meet, squeezing the French between them. Then he realized Hutchinson. In a sudden flash, it all comes clear. It's a eureka moment, an epiphany. Hi, I'm Marcus Smith, host of the Constant Wonder podcast. The world offers marvel, meaning, and mystery around every single corner. In nature, art, science, culture, history, we talk everything from bees and beetles to obelisks and asteroids. Experience the thrill of transformative encounter. We'll bring more wonder to your day. Listen to Constant Wonder wherever you get your podcasts. There was a problem because as a result of capturing Ramanaya, the French in the Delta, instead of going across to Alexandria, as it expected, fell back in Cairo. And with the addition of the Cairo garrison, that meant that any expedition coming up from the Red Sea was going to be completely blocked. So he decided to mount a feint and push towards the Red Sea in the hope of meeting the army coming up from India under General Baird. And then things got immeasurably worse because having rendezvoused with the Delta troops and the Cairo garrison, the French decided to come out and fight, not against the British, but against the Turkish army, which was coming over land from the Levant. Defeat it and then turn on the British which Hutchinson realised was going to be an absolute disaster because he was hoping for Turkish assistance, he was hoping for the Indian Army's assistance, both of them knocked out, plus the increased French forces coming up from the south. He was going to be driven out of Egypt. So frantic messages were sent to the Turks saying, don't fight, don't fight, for God's sake, don't fight. And the Turks said, no choice. We've got the French on our doorstep. We either retreat across the desert and disintegrate, or we fight. And there we got the most incredible battle of the whole campaign, a place called El Kanka, which is a crossroads where the camel routes came up from Suez on the Red Sea and from the Delta, Cairo, and from the Levant. So you have this ramshackle Turkish army sitting there, hoping desperately for somebody to come and help them, and the French bearing down at some speed, intent on destroying them. But so far in the whole Egyptian campaign, every time the Turks had come up against the French, the French had thrashed them. And General Belliard, coming out of Cairo, was intent on doing exactly that. But the British, or rather a little handful of British officers, changed the rules. Normally at this period, Turkish tactics were fairly straightforward. They lined themselves up, had a good look, see where the enemy was and went charging forward. The French, profiting by Austrian and Russian experience in Europe, had worked out how to deal with this, basically by building big squares. 
They built the square, they stuck the cavalry inside the square and waited while the Turks came down on them, shot them to pieces, a bit like Waterloo with the squares there. And they'd shoot them up and then eventually open the square, the cavalry would come out and drive off what's left. But Al Kanka, there's a handful of British officers, Colonel Charles Holloway and Captain William Leake had been operating with the Turkish army with a couple of other officers. And they said, no, 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 you can't do this. Trust us, we've got a cunning plan. And that plan was quite simple. They let the French come at them and moved aside. As the French moved forward, the Turks slipped around the flank, but didn't fight them. They just sat there at long distance shooting. Anytime the French tried to push towards them, they moved back. The French fell back, they got followed by the Turks. Eventually, after five hours, they realized they were losing this battle. More and more Turks were appearing. The Turks weren't getting beaten. They were too solid to be attacked, but yet they were causing casualties. Belliard eventually realized, I can't do this. Every time I try and hit them, they evade me. And all the time, more and more casualties. So eventually he had to give up, turned around, headed back to Cairo. And he didn't lose many men overall. But for the first time in the entire Egyptian campaign, from the moment Napoleon had gone ashore, the Turkish army had won. And that was because the Turkish officers listened to the British ones. It was actually won by that Captain Holloway. That, well, I say Captain Holloway. He's a brevet rank of colonel, but he was still only a substantive captain in the Royal Artillery. Likewise, William Leake. And it was those officers changing the rules who won that battle. Millions of people have lost weight with personalized plans from Noom, like Evan, who can't stand salads and still lost 50 pounds. Salads generally for most people are the easy button, right? For me, that wasn't an option. I never really was a salad guy. That's just not who I am. But Noom worked for me. Get your personalized plan today at Noom.com. Real Noom user compensated to provide their story. In four weeks, the typical Noom user can expect to lose one to two pounds per week. Individual results may vary. Quality sleep is essential. That's why the Sleep Number Smart Bed is designed for your ever-evolving sleep needs. Need a bed that's firmer or softer on either side? Helps you sleep at a comfortable temperature? Sleep Number Smart Beds let you individualize your comfort, so you sleep better together. J.D. Power ranks Sleep Number number one in customer satisfaction with mattresses purchased in-store. And now, save 40% on the Sleep Number Limited Edition Smart Bed for a limited time. For J.D. Power 2023 award information, visit jdpower.com awards. Only at Sleep Number stores or sleepnumber.com. I mean, it's quite an extraordinary story, isn't it? I mean, and this is one of the things that I really like about how you draw this out in your book. You know, that experience of this, I mean, Alex will like this comparison. It's almost sort of has the air of Lawrence of Arabia in it, doesn't North it? You know, Arabia, Northwest Frontier. It's something the British 
specialised in over the next 50 years, the plains and the mountains of Central Asia. You've got these British officers floating about dressed as Turks, dressed as Indians, Afghans, whatever. All these officers, and all too often, those officers are operating without much authority. They've gone, on, they've gone native and they've gone, they're out of control. And yet, they're building the British Empire quietly. They are. I mean, as you say, they're, they're going native, lo embracing local dress and so on. And boy, are they getting results. I'm, I'm curious, why... I mean, this is almost like a chicken and egg question. Do they start embracing local dress because they are identifying with the culture? Is it that they can see that if they embrace local dress and local customs, they are more likely to gain the respect of the locals? Or is it actually kind of both at the same time? It's both at the same time. They start off by wearing Tatar dress and that to fit in, to show respect for the locals. But once having done that, they slip into it. They become more Turkish than the Turks. And same further east you go, and as I say, into high Central Asia. They fit in. But at the same time, it's often to the despair of London. Because there was no such thing as a British Secret Service in those days. Men went off and did things which hopefully were in accordance with British policy. <laughs> which they believed was British policy, which wasn't necessarily what the government wanted them to do. Oh, it's but like Lawrence pre-World War One, isn't it? Getting booted out of Aqaba for going for a very lengthy swim that involved going and spying on Ottoman positions. Yeah, it's, it's one of the tragedies of the First World War, in a way, that Britain had such an influence in Turkey as a result of this century of involvement. And because the Turks had an alliance with the Germans, it basically got thrown away. Well, it's that massive what-if, isn't it, about if Kitchener had been made um, ambassador in Turkey, would they ever have joined the Germans? in World War I? It's a splendid what-if, because, of course, the present trouble in the Middle East itself stems from the destruction of the Turkish Empire. Mm -hmm. Let's take it back to, to Egypt then. And I, Something else that I wanted to almost kind of pounce on as you were talking about it uh, a few minutes back was the second army, the second British army, I should say, in Egypt, which is David Baird's force. And I'm trying to drag this up from reading about it, oh, about a decade ago. But am I right in thinking that they land, as you say, on the, the Red Sea coast and they march just straight across the desert and aim pretty much arrow straight for the Nile? Is that right? Yes, it is. In fact, in later life, Baird reckoned his march from the Red Sea to the Nile was his greatest achievement. There was no fighting involved, but yet his achievement in bringing that army from the Red Sea across the desert to the Nile and then down the Nile to join the coast was by far his greatest achievement as a military officer. And what were the attritional losses like? 
not very much. That, that was his great achievement. He, he succeeded in doing it and organising it so efficiently that he lost very few men doing it. I mean, this um, is the real head-scratcher, isn't it? Because water, where, where, do, where does he get the water from to keep these men going? He carried it up from the wells. He organised relays of camels carrying water bags. He had these camels going back and forth all the time, herds of sheep. So the army itself was split up into groups, even manageable. As soon as each contingent arrived at the next set of wells, having been carried there with the camels, with the water on the way, they then reload the camels, send them on to the next one, and it was a fairly formidable logistical achievement, but because it was thought out beforehand, worked out and sent there, off they went. And when the two armies met, the original army, Abercrombie's army, were very envious of the Indian army, Baird's army, because not only had they come across the desert so efficiently, but it actually brought wine cellars and all sorts of comforts. Whereas Abercrombie's army and the Hutchinson's army, as it later became, had made it up the Nile with sort of a blanket and some biscuits stuffed in their pocket and a bit of water if they were lucky. They came up with great hampers of food and cases of wine and so on, because that's how the Indian army was used to travelling. And they just applied the normal methods and standards coming across the big desert between the Red Sea and the Nile and came through quite splendidly. It's so interesting, isn't it, that contrast in ways of thinking and of course, the vastness of the Indian subcontinent kind of lending itself to a different philosophy in transportation. It, it and did, uh, and you, although we're talking of different philosophies, it was experience. By then, the British Army and its Indian counterpart had years of experience campaigning in India. They knew exactly what was needed and how to deal with it, whereas the British Army coming through the Mediterranean had none. They had very little experience of that sort of thing. They did very well. The improvisation was great, but they didn't have that experience at the outset. So do they have sepoy units within Baird's contingent? I'm thinking of sketches that I'm sure I've seen of um, East Indian Company sepoys, who, if folks aren't familiar with the term, these are... Um, Indians recruited into the East India Company and they serve under the, the company flag and then by sort of extension, therefore, the British flag. They're um, privates, aren't they? Is that what the equivalent rank is? Well, they they are usually commanded by white officers, but you do have a sort of a middling class within that where you have native officers, but they're nowhere near as um, senior in, in rank as the, the white officers. But I'm, I'm curious about how they're received, because there is 
a lot of prejudice during this time for all the, the kind of reasons of race that we know about, about questions of quality. And yet the sepoys were dependable units. So how were they received? Is there this kind of sense that Paul Baird's arrived, but actually he's brought a whole lot of sepoy units. So is that quite as quite the equivalent of, of bringing, you know, a, a, an army that was staffed of, of white troops? Is there that kind of prejudice? No, no. The, nobody thought twice about them. They were an accepted part of an Indian army. Uh, British commanding officers of battalions, but otherwise the company officers were Indian. And they were highly competent. No, no, nobody thought twice about it. Yes, they're part of the Indian army. So here we go. And likewise, the Egyptians and Turks thought nothing about it either, because obviously they have their own native troops of all the So the British ultimately take Cairo. Talk us through the challenges. Is Baird's march across the desert kind of as bad as it gets in terms of the challenges of this campaign? And how are the British able to defeat this numerically superior French force? Is it a case that now you've got Baird, you've got Hutchinson slash previously Abercrombie's force and the Turks, and so therefore kind of weight of numbers is weighing down on the French, or do the French still have the advantage? The French have a morale problem. They've been marooned in Egypt for a while. And as long as they could hold the outer cross, so to speak, they could keep going indefinitely. But as soon as British penetrated from the coast, broke through that crust, then all the scattered garrisons either to surrender or flee to Cairo. And Cairo itself was indefensible. It was far too big to hold with the garrison which was available. So it surrendered and that kind of snowballed the effect. So Hutchinson was then able to turn around and get back down the river to have a look at Alexandria again. Alexandria was still the key to Egypt. So he needed to get back there to take before the campaign could be considered over. So are the French still waiting for Napoleon to uh, fulfil his promise at this point and suddenly descend on Egypt with the army that he, well, the reinforcements rather, that, that he promised them? Or has the realisation set in that actually they're on their own and they've got to make the best of it? Pretty much. I mean, reinforcements were promised, reinforcements were actually sent, but didn't manage to land. And at the same time, the threatened by the Turks. The problem the French have got is if they surrender to the British, they're surrendering to a European power, which they're on civilised terms with. Surrendering to the Turks means they either get executed on the spot or condemned to slavery for the rest of their lives. So once it's obvious that the whole infrastructure of their empire in Egypt is crumbling, very much their primary concern is to surrender to the British before the Turks get them. So is there a hangover there from Napoleon's campaign in Jaffa, particularly, you know, with that incident where he's presented with these prisoners of war, can't feed them, has a little bit of a, a strop about what am I meant to do with them and ultimately ends up executing them? Is there that sort of 
legacy of, you know, the, the Turks are out for revenge, or is there just a French perception that the Turks are going to be out for revenge, which kind of pushes that further? I, I don't think it's necessarily a hangover from Jaffa. I think it was the style of how war was accustomed to be conducted then anyway. I mean, even without Jaffa, I mean, the Turks let loose. It's, you're talking about execution, slavery, etc., etc. And Napoleon, to some extent, although what he did in Jaffa was pretty horrendous, was only following local custom and practice. So in the meantime, you've got the French in the interior who can't escape northwards to Alexandria itself, are surrendering to the British. In Alexandria, the French are hanging on in the hope of peace treaty. The peace is being discussed, and if they can hang on to Alexandria until the peace is signed, that peace will guarantee French control of Egypt. So you, you've got a time problem going. If the French can hold on until the peace treaty, they've won. The British need to capture Alexandria before the peace treaty is signed. You've preempted my next question, actually, because I was going to ask, as you say, piece of, what becomes the Peace of Amiens is in the process of being discussed. So for the British, is there that inclination to try and wrap up the Egyptian campaign before the, the peace process is concluded in order to effectively remove Egypt as a negotiating chip for the French? Or is it kind of a, a professional inclination that actually we want all of this tied up and we want to achieve the maximum in terms of glory for this expedition before somebody come, before the politicians come along and take some of the shine off of what we're achieving here? Oh, it's entirely political. The whole expedition was pushed through in order to capture Egypt from the French before the peace treaty was signed. Now the peace treaty is getting closer and closer and they haven't quite got it. They're running around all over the place in Egypt proper, defeating and capturing the French. But until they can get Alexandria, the French can argue that they are still in possession of Egypt. I won't go so far as say it's nail-biting, but it is going down to the wire on this. The treaty is on the point of being signed, and whoever holds Alexandria at that time is the winner. See, I kind of want to um, ask for the sake of our listeners, what happens in this kind of cliffhanger that you've given us. But I also want people to go and read the book. So I, I think I won't kind of ask you to talk us through what actually happens in Alexandria, uh, if only to, to make people go away and, and buy your book. Um, let's have a, just a, a think to finish off about the longer term consequences of the Egyptian expedition, particularly militarily, as opposed to politically. What kind of legacy does this have? What kind of reaction is there to the fact that the British army has been able to, for all intents and purposes, basically hold its own against the French, despite all of the, the challenges that you've explained to us. It, I mean, is this kind of a, a shock to everybody that the, actually the British have, have done all right for once? Yeah, I mean, the big 
thing about Egypt for the British army was the army itself had stood on its own two feet. It wasn't part of a coalition and it was allied to the Turks, but all the work had been done by the British army on its own. It wasn't part of a coalition with Austrians, Prussians or anybody else. It was a British army and it stood there on the sands of Egypt and it had beaten the French fairly in a series of pitched battles and eventually it had captured Alexandria. Went on to the rest of the war, so to speak, with enormously increased confidence and competence. The brigade commanders and even the battalion commanders in Egypt went on to become divisional commanders and brigade commanders under Wellington. They had worked out how to do it. They had confidence in themselves, confidence in their own competence. That sense of self-confidence really carried them through into Egypt, from Egypt into the peninsula and ultimately to Waterloo. It's a fight all the way to get there, but it started off from Egypt. Egypt really was a turning point in the, the army by itself could go off and do things. That's a really nice point to end on. Stuart, thank you so much for joining us for this. It's been a really interesting chat. No problem. It's been a pleasure. Egypt 1801, it's available from Pen and Sword, or folks can go and buy it from the bookstore, the History Hack bookstore, um, where everybody gets a cut. Stuart gets a cut out of royalties. Independent booksellers get a cut. And so does History Hack. So everybody benefits. So Egypt 1801, go and find it in the bookstore, folks. And Stuart, thank you once again. When our guests join us to talk about their work and their new book, the 45 minutes or so they spend with us is just a taster of all their efforts. So to this end, we have launched our very own bookshop on bookshop.org, where you can find our guests' latest and greatest books. You can support them and you can support History Hack too. 10% of every sale via our bookshop supports the podcast and allows us to keep at it and bring you more amazing guests. You can find our bookshop at bookshop.org forward slash shop forward slash history hack or just search on bookshop.org for us under the shops bit. Thank you for your continued support and here's to your next great book. Hey, it's Danny Pellegrino from Everything Iconic. Ready to upgrade your style game without blowing your budget? Check out Quince. They've got all the good stuff, shirts and polos, activewear and fine leather goods, all at 50 to 80% less than other high-end brands. And the best part? They're all about safe, ethical and responsible manufacturing. Get that luxury vibe without the luxury price tag. Hit up quince.com slash upgrade for free shipping and 365-day returns on your next order. That's quince.com slash upgrade.